Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org. Turn to Daniel chapter 7. William was exactly right. This is a turning point in the book. We're going to go from narrative court stories to apocalyptic literature or prophecy, apocalyptic vision. So the book becomes more complex, more difficult, but I'm really not daunted by that. It stirs my interest more. But let me read verses 1 to 8. So give you some idea, we have Daniel's first vision here in chapter 7, actually from chapter 7 through 12. We're at the halfway point of the book. We're halfway through it. From 7 to the end, another six chapters, it's about four visions that Daniel has. And this is vision number one, and I've divided it in half because it's just too much to cover in one sermon. So we'll look at the first half of the vision this morning, verses 1 to 8, and then, Lord willing, next week, verses 9 to 14, and then we'll come to the interpretation of the vision. It's interesting, Daniel does not interpret his own vision, though he knows all of all of the dreams that Nebuchadnezzar had, or the dream, uh, when it comes to his own vision, an angel has to interpret it for him. It's interesting. So let me read verses 1 to 8. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off. And it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, Arise, Devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great teeth, great iron teeth, 
It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the other beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were the eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. So you can see from the reading, we're now in a totally different field. We have these interesting, enigmatic phrases, numbers, mysterious symbols, and so on. This is typical of apocalyptic vision. But it all has to do with predictive prophecy. And so one can view this as these are things that have been fulfilled in the past or they're being fulfilled or will be fulfilled in the future. There's different ways to approach it. So first of all, in verse 1, very simple what I'm going to do. Verse 1, we want to look at the setting. When When did Daniel have this vision? It's just worth noting because he has it there. He tells us. And then from verses 2 to 8, what did he see in this first half of the vision? What does he say here? In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. Now, remember when we were back in the fifth chapter and we were looking at the feast of Belshazzar? The feast of Belshazzar took place at the end of the Babylonian kingdom, 539 B.C., because the Persians and the Medes came in and took the kingdom that very night, remember, and Belshazzar was killed. That was many years later. So what we're reading now in chapter 7, this is my point, is this vision occurred before the feast of Belshazzar. So these visions are, are, the visions are in chronological order themselves, but they don't follow the historical sequence of the court stories that are in chapters 1 to 6. So in other words, the whole book is not chronological in that sense. The first six chapters are, when you're looking at the narratives, they're in chronological order, but now the visions, they're in chronological order, but they don't mesh with the first six chapters. So just to point that out. So when was the first year of Belshazzar? Well, it was somewhere 553 to 551 are the estimate years, B.C. And like William said, Daniel is now, he's much older. We're 50 years into Daniel's time in Babylon since he was deported from Judea. So he's, he's up there in his late 60s perhaps even 70s. Now, he describes this revelation given to him as a dream and a vision. At the beginning, he uses these two, and I can't tell you why he uses, uses them. A dream and a vision are different in the Bible. Peter distinguished them from Joel's prophecy, your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. 
But he goes on to explain it only in terms of a vision, not a dream. My, my belief is, is that it was a vision, not a dream, but somehow it was connected with him in bed when he saw this. A vision, my understanding of a biblical vision, you actually see it with your eyes. It's always described like that. Five times in this chapter, he says, I saw, I looked. So he's, he's seeing this. In other words, he's not imagining it. He's not, he doesn't have a wild imagination of something now. This is something supernaturally that passes before him. He sees it with his eyes and records it as such. So this is a, this is a mode of divine revelation in the Bible. God had several ways of communicating to his people in the Old Testament. Dreams, visions, by direct dictation as to Moses on Mount Sinai, and the way it came to the other prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah, somehow the word of the Lord spoke to them, they heard it, they knew what God was saying, and it was communicated like that. So this is Daniel's first vision. Now, what does he see? Well, it's described here, Let's, let's look at this. First of all, he, he describes the four winds of heaven stirring up the great sea. If we go to Revelation chapter 7 and verse 1, interesting parallel, by the way. Revelation 7, 1, John, in the apocalypse of the New Testament, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth. So the four winds are connected to the four corners of the earth. Obviously, speaking about the winds that come from the east and the west, the north and the south. And they're blowing... On the great sea. That may be a reference to the Mediterranean because it was known in the ancient world as the great sea. So it's probably likely that this is not the ocean per se that Daniel is looking at. He's looking at the Mediterranean. Although he's in Babylon, but he's very familiar with it having come from Judah. So these, the winds are blowing from the four corners of the earth. And they are whipping up the great sea. So you can just imagine, we know what the wind does to the sea. It tosses the waves, it becomes very turbulent, very restless, very chaotic. And out of the sea, which is going to be interpreted as the earth, these four creatures come out of the great sea, out of the earth, one after another. Now, I just want to say right off what Nebuchadnezzar dreamed back in the second chapter. You remember the great image. Nebuchadnezzar saw a great image of a man. And he was divided up into four or five kinds of metals. He had a head of gold, a breast and arms of silver, 
a belly and thigh of bronze, and then his legs were iron and his feet were a combination of iron and clay. This was, Nebuchadnezzar couldn't quite remember it. This dream troubled him. He knew he saw something, and he wanted it recounted to him. Daniel told him exactly what he dreamed, and that was it. Remember what it was? Those, that image represented the great four world empires. Nebuchadnezzar was able to see the course of human history from the vantage point of the four great kingdoms that were going to rule the world. Daniel said to Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. Your kingdom of Babylon, the great Babylonian kingdom, is represented by the head. Now, what kingdom followed Babylon? Well, we're told in chapter 5 it was the Medes and the Persians, the Medo-Persian Empire. So those two right off are fulfilled in his dream, but now we're getting further into world history that's yet future in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And the great kingdom that followed the Medo-Persian Empire was Alexander the Great, the Grecian Empire. And that merged into the Roman Empire. What we have here is a repetition of that same course of history. Only Daniel sees it differently. And there's some additions to that picture that Daniel's vision gives us. So what is it that Daniel saw here? Well, the first thing that happens is this beast of a lion comes out of the great sea. A lion that has the wings of an eagle. Now, the lion and the eagle are both known to be probably at the top of their species for being the best predators, the most fierce. It's interesting that he puts those two together, the eagle with a lion. The lion was known um, as the symbol of royalty in Babylon, as it is in many places, connected with Kingship, but especially in Babylon. As they excavated the ruins of Babylon, they found many reliefs of lions. So this, this was a common um, animal that was connected to the Babylonian kingdom. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar and his army are described as lions and eagles. Let me just read you a couple out of Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 7. It says, a lion has gone up. From his thicket, a destroyer of nations has set out. And it's speaking of Babylon. And then later in Jeremiah's prophecy, near the end, in chapter 50 and verse 17, it says, Israel is is a hunted sheep driven away by lions. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has gnawed his bones. And then the prophet Habakkuk in the first chapter tells us that the, the horsemen of the Babylonian army are like eagle 
like an eagle swift to devour. So both the eagle and the lion are used in the Old Testament to describe Nebuchadnezzar and his army. So he's describing Babylon here. But we have an interesting thing here said about the lion. You noticed it. Notice its wings were plucked off. And uh, that could refer to the fact that it was deteriorating right at the time Daniel wrote. The kingdom was about to change hands under the leadership of the current king, Belshazzar. But as it goes on to describe, the lion was lifted up, it was granted, uh, lifted up from the ground and made to stand on its two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. This, to me, goes back to the fourth chapter in Nebuchadnezzar's illness, when he was possessed with the delusion that he was an animal. A beast. There's an actual name for that. They have it defined as lycanthropy when a person thinks they're an animal. So this is a form of mental illness. But remember, he was restored to his right mind. He was given the mind of a man again. So it seems to be a parallel to what happened in the fourth chapter to Nebuchadnezzar. Not sure exactly, but it could represent his illness and then his restoration by what it says. So that's clear, the lion. I may not have the details right exactly as far as the understanding of the symbolism, but I'm I'm making some suggestions here but cannot be absolutely dogmatic as to what it means about the lion rearing up on its back legs, standing up like a man other than what I just said. Not sure. Now, the next beast is compared to a bear. So notice he's comparing it to known animals. First a lion, though it's grotesque, it's got wings. This is an unusual lion. Now the bear is just straight a bear. However, his unique thing is that he's lifted up on one side. He's raised up. Now, does it mean he's standing up on his hind legs? Uh, The commentator said, no, that's really not the picture. It's more he's lifted up on one side of his body. One side of his body is higher than the other side. So if the bear is representing the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians, what seems to be symbolized there is the idea that the Persian kingdom is greater than the, the, than the Medes, because it was Cyrus, king of Persia, that conquered the Medes. The Medes had their own kingdom for a while, but Cyrus conquered them, and he merged the two. They came together, and they became the Medo-Persian Empire. So the idea is up on one side. Also the image with both arms and the the chest of silver, the two arms also could be a perfect symbolism for the Medes and the Persians, the two coming together to make the one. But the ascendancy of the Persians over the Medes might be represented by the fact that the bear is up on one side. He's higher on one side. Now in the next chapter, in chapter 8, 
it's clearly the ram that we're going to see there that has two horns. The ram. And what's interesting, it says one of the horns is longer than the other one. You got a short horn and a long horn on the ram. And then we're told the ram represents the Medes and the Persians. So again, it's the idea one is greater, one is stronger than the other one. Because Cyrus, he conquered the last king of the Medes. So they were, they were subordinate. In, in his kingdom, the Medes were subordinate to the Persians, though they were together to form the one kingdom. Now what is said here about the bear? He has three ribs in his mouth. Now this is probably significant because Cyrus, he conquered three kingdoms. He, he conquered Lydia. I don't know anything about Lydia, but this is what is said. In 546 B.C., the kingdom of Lydia, and then the Babylonian kingdom in 539, and then the Egyptians were conquered in 525. Those could be the three ribs in the mouth of the bear. Or it could just be because a bear has a voracious appetite. He never satisfied. He's always eating, getting very uh, heavy for the winter uh, nap he's going to take. And this is how they are until they go into hibernation. They're voracious. Again, this is a, a fearful beast known for its great strength, but particularly here it's the appetite that has the emphasis. He's got these ribs in its mouth. And then it's even said, devour more flesh. Just keep going for it. Well, this is how the, the Medo-Persian Empire was, apparently. Now, the next one. Now we're getting into the real future from Daniel's time. The leopard. And here the animal is becoming quite odd. We have a leopard, which also is a, a great predator, Apparently, they'll take on a, a lion, a leopard will. They're really known for ambushing their prey, how they sneak up and pounce on their prey so unexpectedly. So they're very agile. It's an intelligent creature, very, very strong. I saw a leopard on uh, a program kill a, a very sizable deer. And it carried that deer in its mouth way up high in a tree. Just dragged the whole thing up there. It's pretty amazing, the strength of that animal. So this is the beast that is represented here. And it has four wings and four heads. Now again, the idea of wings speaks of swiftness and speed, rapidity. And four heads. Now, this is where it gets really interesting because this really follows the Grecian Empire of Alexander the Great. First of all, Alexander conquered the world in 12 years. From 334 to 323 B.C., Alexander had conquered the then-known world as his and became his kingdom. 
So he was known for the swiftness of the empire. But Alexander came to a very untimely death. He died very young. And his kingdom was divided up among his four captains, his four generals. This is, this is all known history. So these are the four heads. There was a captain by the name of Cassander, and to him was given Greece and Macedonia. There was another commander, Lysimachus, and he was given Thrace and Asia Minor. And then the more well-known ones, Seleucus was given Syria and Ptolemy was given Egypt. The last two are going to be important when you come to chapter 11. There's very detailed there about the history that goes on between them. Now notice what it says about the leopard in his kingdom. The very last phrase, dominion was given to it. So ultimately, from the point of view of the word of God, as great as Alexander was in his understanding of warfare and so on, he was not entirely responsible for conquering the world. That dominion was gifted to him. It's a reminder of what Nebuchadnezzar had to learn all along until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomsoever he will. And here again, in a very brief phrase, we're reminded of that same truth. God is the one who directed Alexander gave him his success, preserved his life, and gave him the world. Dominion was given to him. Okay, now we come to the fourth beast. Notice right off that this beast is not compared to any known animal. Did you catch that? He can't say the fourth beast was like, no, <laughs> We got a lion, we got a bear, and we got a leopard. But when it comes to the fourth one, you cannot draw any analogy from any known animal. In fact, this animal is quite grotesque. It's more like a monster. Look at how he describes it. It's dreadful, it's ex terrifying, it's exceedingly strong. It has teeth of iron, and later, when we're given the interpretation, another little detail is added. It has bronze claws. So this is a, this is a terrifying beast that Daniel sees, and it's just totally destructive. It devoured. It uh, broke in pieces, and what it did, and what it couldn't break in pieces with its mouth, it stomped. And crushed with its feet, whatever it's in its way. What kingdom is being described here for us? This has got to be Rome. This is the Roman Empire. This is the great empire of Rome. 
known for its ruthlessness, its, its power, and it has ten horns, this beast, on top of it. And we're told in the interpretation later in the chapter that these are ten kings. So the horns stand for ten kings. Why is a horn compared to a king? Well, most of the horned animals that we're familiar with are very strong, very powerful animals. There are a few that don't have quite the strength of the others, but most of, most of the animals that we know that have horns, they're, they're powerful. And so the idea of a horn in the Bible, it speaks of strength and power. So this is ten kings. Now, it's known that Rome was ruled by a number of rulers, so that it fits that perfectly. Ten being the perfect number, I don't think it means ten specific ones, but ten being a complete number, many, a multiplicity of kings. This is, this is what characterized the Roman Empire, because it went on for years and years and years, centuries. But what we're interested in is in this next detail. This little horn. Notice what it says about this little horn. So as Daniel is contemplating this beast with ten horns, so he's looking at this, notice that the little horn isn't there yet. He's looking at the beast with ten horns. And why he's looking at it, oh, there comes up this little horn out of nowhere. So it comes later. That's an important detail. What that is telling us is that this little horn, whoever or whatever is represented by the little horn, comes up later in the history of the Roman Empire. He's called little. This is, this is intended to slight him. He's small. And we're going to see he talks like a bighorn. He's got a very boastful tongue. But the word of God says he's a little, little horn. He's small. Notice that as he comes up, three of the ten horns are uprooted. And it's passive. The verb is passive there. They are uprooted and plucked up by the roots, three of the horns. The little horn does not pluck them up. That's not what is being told here. The three that are uprooted, this is being done by someone else that's clearing the path for this little horn to come up. The way is being made for him, his appearance. I'm not quite sure what that means at this point, but I'm trying to give it to you what I believe is in the text. It's an interesting detail. But then the little horn, notice he has human features. He has the eyes of a man. He has speech. And he has boastful speech is what is being told here. He speaks great things, and we're going to get more of that later 
in the interpretation, the nature of his boasts, boasting. And so the thing that's drawn out is his eyes and his mouth. Because these are the most expressive traits of, uh, of man. This is how we can discover character is how a person looks in their eyes, how they speak. This is why the Bible talks about haughty eyes, lying tongue, and so on. These are the things the, Lord's, the Lord hates. Now, if you're wondering, like I am, who is the little horn in history? Who is this? That is what we're going to try to find out, as William Shatner would say on Unexplained. This is what we're going to try to figure out. But something that we need to keep in mind, and I discovered that I had in my library a book. It's funny that I make a discovery in my own library. You'd think I'd had a library of 10,000 volumes. No, I have a lot of books, but... This is a book, and I can't remember where I got it, how much I paid for it, or anything else. But I am so happy I got it. It's a book by a man named Thomas Newton, 18th century guy. He was a bishop at Bristol. He wrote a book, almost 700 pages, on dissertations on Bible prophecies and their remarkable fulfillment in history and their ongoing fulfillment in his time. That's in the title page, all of that. So I pulled him out, and I'm, I'm also reading him now. I didn't use him in any of the other parts of Daniel because we're not coming to... There was no predicted prophecy to look at except back in chapter 2. But I, I have him out now. And I came across this statement from Thomas Newton, and I, thought it, I think it was a good one. He says, It is the nature of apocalyptic prophecy not to be perfectly understood till the time of their fulfillment. So in other words, there's going to be a lot of mystery that surrounds these things. Until you get to the time of the fulfillment, and then you suddenly say, it becomes clear, God is fulfilling this. Look at what's happening. Now this agrees with the book of Daniel, because when you come to the end of Daniel, what is told to Daniel? Daniel in chapter 12 and verse 9 The words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Speaking about the words of his own prophecy. So Daniel didn't even understand much of what he wrote. It was hidden from him. And he's told, Daniel, just kind of have to close this up, seal it, and be content with what I've given you. Because later on, when the end approaches... These things will be unsealed. It will be made known what their meaning is. And so that's the first thing I want to say about that. We probably are not going to have a satisfactory answer as to who or what the little horn is. I believe he's a person. 
Well, I do have my leanings about who I believe he is, of course. But i got to tell you, honestly, I don't have an agenda here. I can say that before God is my witness, I do not have an agenda of some viewpoint of the future that I'm going to force on this congregation. I'm, I'm kind of where you are. I'm just staying a step ahead in my study. But I really just want to go through these things and see what God unfolds to us in our study of this book. Now, I know nobody has a complete blank slate when they come to study the Bible. So I'm not saying that. I can't get away from the things that I already know about Scripture, what I've been taught in the past, but I don't have on agendas to teach you a certain scheme of prophecy. We will see how the Lord leads us. We'll see what the Lord reveals. That's, that's how I want to put it. And see if we can come to any solid conclusions about these things. So that's the first thing I want to say about the little horn. Now, here's something very interesting that I want to bring out. So we have... These two revelations in chapter 2 and chapter 7 that coalesce very nicely together because they're basically revealing the same thing, aren't they? The one was revealed to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Remember who he is. This man is, he's a polytheist. He believes in many deities. He's got a very worldly view of life. He has a very high view of himself and his kingdom. Now, when the, when the four kingdoms are revealed to this man, how, how does he see it? He sees it as a grand image of, that's dazzling, it says. It was bright, it was shining, it was mighty. This is how a godless, worldly man sees the kingdoms of this world. He's enamored by them. He's one of them. His kingdom is right there at the top. But then take Daniel. He's the man of God. He's the servant of Yahweh. He's got a different perspective on life and these things. How are these kingdoms revealed to Daniel? Oh my gosh, they're revealed as fierce, terrifying, frightening, powerful beasts. You know, that's, that's the difference between a viewpoint of God on things versus Man's viewpoint on things. Remember what Jesus said in Luke 16? What is highly esteemed among men is an abomination to God. Nebuchadnezzar saw in a completely different light than how Daniel. Daniel sees these as terrifying beasts, which, to, to me... They are revealing human nature for these kingdoms to be revealed as frightening beasts that tear their prey apart 
and devour what stands in their way and destroys whatever would hinder them in their progress. This is a picture of human nature. This is a picture of how man, when he is on a pursuit for power in this world, he's driven by a desire to conquer the weak, and will stop at nothing in order to have that power and control and domination over others. These are beasts. It could be a little revelation here to us, kind of the underbelly of the beast as well. What drives men uh, like this? Why they are such terrifying beasts? An interesting parallel is the last book of the Bible, Revelation 13. Jim made reference to it today in Sunday school. It's interesting. Because there, John sees a beast. And where does he come from? Comes out of the sea. (laughs) And he is described as a leopard. The feet of a bear... And the mouth of a lion. Isn't that interesting? The same three animals that are in Daniel 7 are here. But that's not my point here so much. What is interesting that's told to us about this beast that comes out of the sea compared to those animals is that it has its power and authority and throne from the dragon. The dragon. Who's the dragon? Well, you have to go back one chapter, Revelation 12. The dragon is Satan. That old serpent, the devil, who deceives the world. He is the great dragon. In other words, what's being told to us is that Satan is the power behind this beast. He's the one that's being manifested here. I believe that's true of these, these kingdoms as well. They are driven by the powers of darkness. This is where it comes from. This is why they're described in such detail. And the last thing I want to say in conclusion is, so both Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar have given to us an outline of really one of the most significant periods of human history because it impacts us down to modern times, I believe. In some way, these things are for us even 20 centuries later. So this, is, this was a very huge revelation that was made to Nebuchadnezzar in his dream and to Daniel in this vision outlining the same course of human history. This is God's plan that is being unfolded to us and revealed. But what is revealed in addition to the fact that these beasts are terrible is the instability of these kingdoms and their temporalness because they don't last. The one ends and merges into the next, and then the next. And so these kingdoms are temporary, 
And that's one of the points he's going to make because they are in contrast to the eternal kingdom of God that knows no end. The kingdoms of this world. And so it's glorious to see the great contrast that is going to come in the next scene. The second half of this vision. Because after describing the turbulent sea and these wild beasts that come out of the sea, the vision changes to heaven. It's a new scene. It's the Ancient of Days seated upon his throne. Everything is secure. Everything is stable. There's no evil. There's no chaos. And this is the way... God wants his people to see it. The fact that we're living our life out now among beasts. We need to remember who is in heaven, who is in control. And this is why the Bible says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. That that's where our true comfort is, that's where our hope lies, this is what brings stability, comfort to us as Christians when we are living in a very chaotic time in this world. May the Lord bless this portion of his word this morning. Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org.